Now, last week, <clears throat> we, uh, we looked at uh, Proverbs chapter 11, verses 19, 22. You know, we're coming through the book of Proverbs and got our way up to chapter 11 here. And uh, I laid out five new principles, and that's really uh, what we've been doing, just taking our time, laying out biblical principles that really apply to our lives. And we've gotten now into Proverbs that uh, itself, which is a great, great, great uh, series of principles. And I, and I showed you how that the uh, Bible, uh, in a doctrinal way, and I've told you this many, many times, but also an inspirational way, uh, that it will build itself around key words and key phrases. And that's really what we've been doing here in a practical application, looking at a key word that opens up the New Testament principle uh, to give us what we need. And we saw how that uh, the righteous uh, tendeth the life last week. We looked at uh, the man that pursueth evil, where he winds up. Uh, we looked at a froward heart versus the man who is upright in his way. Uh, we looked at the great concept of hand joining hand. I think that's probably one of the best practical uh, verses that really show you a lot today why things are the way they are with people <clears throat> and Christianity in the world. And then we saw the illustration of an unsaved woman who the Bible likens to a sow. Uh, I told you and showed you over there where an unsaved man is likened to a dog. And he uses those concepts to show us that unsaved people, like the pig goes back to his wallow and the, and the dog returns to its vomit, how that unsaved people just keep going back to their sin and going back to the things of the world. And today, we're going to look at the next section of verses in this chapter, and, and uh, we won't get it all finished today, but this last section will close out Proverbs chapter 11. And I, I need to tell you today that I think that these verses today will be a real help to you uh, to figure out um, your own relationship with the Lord. Uh, and really, beyond that, your relationship to uh, our church or if you belong to another church, any church. I know of no greater message today that Christians need to hear than the message of Proverbs chapter 11, verses 23 through 31. And I, I wish that you know, in one setting, I could just give you everything and lay it all out, but that's impossible because there's so much here. But um, we'll probably not get past the first verse today. But the key, first verse is really the key to it all. <clears throat> now, it goes without saying, and everybody should basically understand this, that every pastor should have goals that he sets for his church. Um, that's one of the first things that uh, a pastor ought to do when he contemplates starting a church or when he starts a church. Uh, there's some things that he should want his congregation to uh, succeed in in some, in some vital areas. And his job as pastor is to develop the people that God sends him. I mean, that's pretty basic and pretty simple. Ephesians chapter 4 gives us kind of a capsule view of that where he talks about the job of the church, pastors and teachers, is for the perfecting of the saints, for the uh, work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. And we all know that. I've told you before that fundamentally... There's about eight absolute steps to being a pastor. And, uh, you know, he can, if he can do these well, you know, he'll get some things done. If he, if he can't do these, then he won't get anything done, and it'll just be a, another church that never gets off the ground or a mega church that never really does anything. And I've given them to you before, but I've never really taken the time to explain them. And now as we're moving into this chapter and this key chapter and what we're going to talk about as far as we as Christians, what we should not only do, but what we should be. I want to kind of walk you through it. I've told you before that one of the first things a pastor has to be able to do is relate to people. 
uh, building relationships with your people, becoming one with your people. Most pastors, and they're taught this, most pastors think that it's wrong to get close to their people. Whenever they went to Bible college or whatever they taught them, they teach them that there's the, that God concept, you know, that the idea that God is untouchable, so the idea that the pastor is untouchable. You can't ever get to him to talk with him. Uh, he doesn't know who you are. Uh, he has a myriad of little worker ants that in his church that takes care of all your problems, and they don't do a very good job. And uh, he kind of second uh, guesses you out and second strings you out to everybody out there. And many times, uh, you know, he's he just, you know, very uncomfortable around people. I've known pastors and been around pastors all my life. I've seen some of them that I absolutely wondered why they ever in the ministry. They didn't like people. They didn't want to be around people. They were intimidated by people. They were uncomfortable with people. But they liked the idea of being God. They liked the idea of stepping up into the pulpit on Sunday morning before throngs of people. And, uh, and, and many of them were good preachers. Many of them had something to say. But when it came down to the real fundamental aspects of what a pastor should be, he should be more than just somebody who's a good preacher. He should be somebody who can relate to his people, spend time with them, uh, you know, giving uh, them what they need. Most of these guys, they don't spend any time with their people. They have their preacher buddies that are around the country in churches like theirs, and they get away and they talk about crying their beer, complain about this, complain about that. That's their little world that they live in. And they lose touch, obviously, uh, with most important commodity that any church has. That's the people. Second thing a pastor has to be able to do is to regenerate people. You have to be able to get people saved. Uh, You have to have an evangelistic lifestyle yourself and develop a philosophy that whatever you do, I don't care. I don't care if it's volleyball. I don't care if it's going down and passing out hot dogs. I don't care. Whatever you do, the bottom line is conveying uh, the gospel to people and telling them about what Christ has done for them. It takes an ability to be able to penetrate different cultures, to be able to see that this, you know, soul winning, winning people to Christ is a lot like fishing. In fact, Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. Well, you guys who are fishermen, and I'm not, but I know this much about it, you don't always use the same lure. You don't always use the same bait. You always lose. I love looking down through the, in the sports section. Uh, they have the, uh, where all the state lakes they tell you what fish are biting on what and how good it is fair poor great you know and i always enjoy watching that because it changes this time they're they're biting on this they're biting on that i don't know what these things are calling but you use this in deep water you this in shallow water in other words when you go fishing it used to be you just took a can of worms you don't take a can of worms now you get those shiny things that spin you get things down there that are stripes on them that look like other fish. You get stuff that looks like a frog. You get other little fish and cut them up and you use those for bait. You use all, liver. use all kinds of stuff. And you catch different fish on different lures. Well, soul winning is the same thing. You don't always use the same bait every time you go out to win somebody to Christ. You have to be versatile enough to know that you have to be able to use different things because different cultures, different people has to have a different strategy. The end game is the same, the gospel. But how you get the gospel to them, how you penetrate where they are, that is the key. And the Bible says that our job is to bear fruit. And that in John 15, 16, not only do we bear fruit, but we're to get our fruit to remain. It takes an understanding of a philosophy, a, a strategy of ministry to be able to do that. Then the third thing a pastor needs to be able to do, and he needs to do this well, and that is motivate. 
A strong leader will be able to motivate people. He'll be able to uh, give them a vision, keep it fresh, keep it alive. Hey, through the, uh, the making the Bible, through uh, his, his preaching, uh, you know, come alive. Be able to paint a picture with what he's trying to preach. He needs to preach to where people live, uh, getting them what the Word of God, getting them in touch with the things that they really need. The principles are going to change their life. He doesn't need to be answering questions that nobody's asking. He needs to understand where his people are, what the needs are, and then be able to motivate them around the Word of God. No place in the Bible... In the Old Testament, God's people were absolutely had to have a good leader. When you gave them a great leader like Moses, Joshua, Caleb, they were a great people. When you gave them a lousy leader like Ahab and Jezebel and the rest of that crowd, they were a terrible people. Nobody on this planet ever needed strong leadership in the Old Testament more than the nation of Israel. And it carries over in the New Testament. If there's anybody who needs strong leadership today uh, in churches, it's God's church. And this is the problem. I look at a lot of goofy things in Christianity that are absolutely worthless. I think that 98% of what goes on in churches today have nothing to do with the Word of God. I think it's a bunch of uh, fluff. I think it's a bunch of goofy stuff. But you look at the people, and I know some of them can get caught up in it and all that, but the bottom line is this. It all goes back to the leadership. Your people will let you motivate them to be. If you motivate them to be an idiot, they're going to be an idiot. If you motivate them to be strong and in touch with the Bible, love the book, get into the Word of God, that's what you're going to have. You have to be able to do that. Give them real-life illustrations, not words out of a, a, a meaningless message to their lives, but the very words of life that, that they need. And when you be able to see that and understand that, you know, you begin to be able to motivate people. The fourth thing he needs to do is to accelerate people. A pastor has to know how to take what he's learned, get it to somebody else that what has taken him 40 years to learn, he can give it to somebody else a lot quicker. Pastor's job is to take, listen to me, the pastor's job is to take complicated things and make them easy to understand. He doesn't, I've met some guys that they'll take the simplest thing in the world and by the time they're done with it, you're so confused that you don't even know what they're talking about. You got to be able to have the ability to take the most complicated things in the Bible and break it down in its most simplistic form. The lowest common denominator, as I call it. Being able to give your people and accelerate them in their growth by taking what God is giving to you and then give it to them on a quicker footing, on a quick... I understand the Bible says that you have to study to show thyself approved. I know that you can't... There's no fast track to the Bible. I get that. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, what I've taken 45 plus years of my life to learn, I better have a plan to be able to give it to you a lot quicker. And you do that by seeing the needs of your people, seeing what you have, and then learning how to take those things and break them down into pieces that everybody could understand it. The fifth thing is to elevate people. Encourage them. Encourage them. Edify them. To be able to look at your good qualities, even when you still have some not-so-good qualities. To be able to look past where you struggle, but see where you really are. Uh, you know, I, I've told you before, most pastors, they stand up at the top of the stairs and the people are down here on three or four levels down and they'll scream at them to get up where the spiritual level where they are. And then they'll 
They'll give them all kinds of grief because the people will stumble up those stairs, not make it up fast enough. When the real job of the pastor is to walk down those stairs and put your arm around them and bring them up one step at a time, whatever it takes, whatever they stumble with, whatever they struggle with, and help them through it. I was watching a couple of days ago, flipping through the television, and they had some kind of uh, athletic event with little girls who were about, oh, I don't know, probably maybe Maddie's age. Uh, They didn't look much older than her. And they were doing incredible things. And the the thing that I watched was the high bar, you know, the bar that's up there, and it's about nine feet up, and and, uh, it's got a bar across. And and I watched this little gal, and she she was tiny. And a coach lifted her up, you know, and she grabbed the bar. And, man, when she got moving, I mean, this kid was doing hand flips, standing up, turning around on the bar, swinging back a rack around, pulling her leg back up, going up, standing up straight, coming down through this. And when she dismounted, she come up, twirled around, did 17 seven assaults, stood up and said, hi, mom, and then hit the ground perfect. I saw that and I thought to myself, you know what? That's what being a pastor is. That's what uplifting people is. See, all I have to do with most of you is lift you up and get your hands on the bar. And when that coach lifted her up and she grabbed that bar, you know what that coach did? He got out of the way. And she took over from there. You know what the job of a church is or a pastor is? It's to help lift you up that you get your hands on that bar. And when you get your hands on that bar, I'm getting out of the way. God's going to, you're going to take, God's going to take you and you're going to show everybody what you got with the Lord. But you have to be uplifted to do that. You can't do that by somebody just beating you down all the time. I've seen parents that beat down their kids continually. By the time the kids get to be in their 20s or 30s, they're, they're, they, you know, they have such a bad self-image of themselves that it's unbelievable. Smart parents will elevate their kids. They'll lift their kids up. And a smart pastor will learn how to do that. He'll, he'll raise up a core of leaders that way. And he'll build the church around them, around those leaders, but he'll be continually taking new people, lifting them up, and broadening, uh, broadening that base. Then the sixth thing, he has to learn to educate people. There's some things about the Bible that you need to know. There's some things about life you need to know. There's some things about Christianity that you need to know. And uh, you, need to, you need to take the blinders off sometime. You need to realize that when you start dealing with reality of the ministry and Christianity, not everything is always as it seems to be. And you need to educate people to be aware of their surroundings. The thing I love about you, that you have been to other churches and somebody got up there and preached something that was goofy and you spotted it just like that. And that's because you're aware of your surroundings. You're not just, you're not, you know, there's some things that, that, that aren't always right and not always good. There's plenty of things that are good, but you'll be able to see the difference between the two. 99% of God's people today are illiterate when it comes to understanding why they believe what they believe. You want to have the funnest time in your life? Just get somebody who blows his stack about some great thing that he believes and then throw him a Bible and have him show you why he believes it. Seventh thing, and this is my favorite, by the way, placate people. That means you put up with them. They're silliness. There's so many people that we just like to write off right out of the chute. 
so quickly. I've learned that, there, that getting to where I want you to be is a maturing process. I realize that there's an adolescence, adolescence ad, being a young kid in Christianity, <laughs> adolescence. I realize that when a kid grows up and they're four and five, they do stupid things, six or seven. They'll do dumb things. You don't throw them out of your family. Well, I hope you don't. You understand that they're, they're going through a process. When they get to be junior high age, oh, make horror movies for most of your kids at that point. Makes The Walking Dead look mundane. But it's a thing where they're going through a process. You don't throw them out. Well, maturing process in a person's life is the same thing. Many pastors can look at somebody and all they see is the problems they have. They see how worthless they think they are. They don't, and when they don't like that person, it just adds to the things that they look to find wrong. I never look at the wrong in anybody. I may have to deal with the wrong in people, but that's not what I focus on. I may be forced to make a hardline stand with something, but that's not what I focus on. And even when I got to drop the hammer on somebody because they're stupidly doing things wrong and won't change it, my heart breaks because of the fact, even though I see that, I see the potential that they had if they just would really do what they need to do. You've got to be able to help people along. I have certain qualities that I look for in people. And even though a person may be coming up through that adolescence or coming up through that junior high years of Christianity, I want to look beyond that. I want to push that aside, and I want to see if I see those core values. And then the last thing, this is the most important, and this really launches us into our message today, and not only a pastor has to have the ability to duplicate people. And this one is the fundamental job of every Christian, every church, is to duplicate ourselves in others. The bottom line of New Testament Christianity is simply moms and dads duplicating in their children what they have in Christ. And then once the family gets set, the kids raise up, the kids are in ministry with you, they're doing everything that you're doing, they love the book, they love God, they love church, they love everything about it, and then you take that and then you invest that in the lives of other people through your church. That's the way it works. We got a CD machine back here. I don't, I don't know, I'm going to guess here. How many, Scott, how many CDs did that machine we got make at one time? Nine. Nine were fruit-bearing. I love it. Could you imagine when you're standing in line back there and we only have one CD and we got to run it off one at a time? We invested in a machine that does nine CDs at one time. And you know what? When you get your church to the place that just as we can duplicate a CD nine at a time, when you get 25 people in your church duplicating themselves and other people, instead of one at a time, instead of just one person over here, when you get 40 people in your church that are duplicating themselves in somebody else's lives, when you get 50 people that are duplicating themselves in somebody else's lives and it's just the one, that's when you're going to get something done. That's when, it gets, that's when it gets to the place where you're now really going someplace and doing some things for the Lord. But I need to tell you this. These eight things become the essence of a man's ministry to set a high bar, a high standard for his people. His success as a pastor, honestly, rises and falls on these eight things. But you just don't grow into these. 
I didn't learn these because I just woke up smart one day or found a book. You don't just grow into these. These things are handed down from generation to generation in solid Bible-believing churches that aren't around very much today. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.2, the things that I have committed unto you, the same commit unto faithful men. History is a list of the transfer of truth from spiritual father to spiritual son as he duplicated himself from, from, from a woman to another lady as she duplicated herself and what she learned all down through the history of the church. And in the Bible, you see examples of Paul, what he did with Timothy. You realize that when Paul wrote the young Timothy, he wrote to him after he was in the ministry? He had spent the time giving him everything that he needed. And now he writes him First and Second Timothy to keep the instructions going. Titus, Philemon, they were men that he duplicated himself with. And it just doesn't happen because you go to a Bible college someplace and somebody tells you. You don't learn it that way. You learn it because when you're in a New Testament Bible-believing church who follows the line of tradition of teaching and believing the book and the principles that have been handed down from generations to the great men of God who understood it, who preached it, who believed it, and built the core of character of preachers today, and it gets duplicated and passed down. That's how you do it. That's exactly how you do it. 1 Timothy 4.11 says, These things command and teach, Paul told Timothy. The goal I have for you as this church are the same goals that my Father and the Lord had for me. And I learned them well. I learned early on that God had put that man in my life to show me what I did not know. I never got to the place like some of God's young men do today that I ever thought I knew more about it than he did. I realized that I was the student and he was the teacher. I realized that God had put him in my life. John chapter 1 says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He wasn't that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. And in my life, there was a man sent from God whose name was Mel. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light that through him all men might believe. Wherever you're at in this church, if you're by my side in ministry and you're working and you're doing the things of God and you're duplicating yourself in others, I'm going to tell you one fundamental thing about you. You got there because somebody invested their life in you. That's the only reason you're here today. It's the only reason you're doing anything today. Somebody took the time to duplicate themselves in you because that's what it needs to be. Mel got them from his father in the Lord. And so on it goes down through history. And you know, the importance of a, a man of God or a woman of God in your life that duplicates themselves and gives you what you need. Uh, even after I got into ministry, as I said a moment ago, how Timothy uh, got the letters from Paul after he was in the past. I don't know. I would have never made it into ministry. I would have never made it into ministry after I came to Kansas City if I would have not had my father and the Lord to fall back on. Not only did he teach me the things I had when I was with him, but I always had a place. And boy, 
If I thought for a second that I understood the ministry before I got to Kansas City, my eyes were open just two days after I was here. And I always had him to fall back on. I always had him to say, hey, man, I'm sorry to call you again, but what do I do with this? What, how do I handle this? It was an ongoing process that I realized that I never got to the point where I ever let him get out of my world, uh, even, even years later. I never, never let it get to the point where I always respected what he was and what God did with him in my life. And I realized the importance that I would not be, if I'm anywhere today, I would not be where I'm at today. I would not have what I have today in my family, in my wife, in my kids, and in you. I would not have what I have today if it wasn't because a long time ago when my father died and went home to be with the Lord and I was pretty much on my own, some man took me in and duplicated himself into my life. That's the job of this church. That's the job of every one of you here today. That's the job that God saved you for. About two or three years ago, the last World War I veteran died. And we've forgotten the sacrifices that those men made in the war to end all wars. The World War II vets, they're dying at 1,200 men and women a day. And we've forgotten I remember reading a book on World War I that was probably one of the best books that I ever read. And it was a tour of the World War I battlefields, and it was done in the 80s. And it showed you the towns and the places. And remember now, World War II was fought right on top of that. Many of the places were obliterated. But I, I love the title of the book because this guy was trying to show the war that was the most horrific war in the history of the world. And he wanted people to remember. And the title of the book was simply, Before Endeavors Fade. Before Endeavors Fade. Pretty soon the World War II vets will all be gone. And we've already forgotten. Who knows what, who, and what, and where Monte Cassino was? Who knows what happened at Guadalcanal or Iron Bottom Sound? Who knows anything about Bataan, Corregidor, although even the Bataan Death March. They mean nothing to people today. And the World War and the Korean War and the Vietnam boys, they're in their 60s and their 70s and they're in their 80s. And there's a time coming when they're all gone that we will lose the value of the lessons that all of those men made and a sacrifice for. Now, when the World War II vets go, this country will lose the greatest commodity that it ever had, the greatest generation that kept the real spirit of America alive by and through their sacrifice. And you see it already. You see it already, the decay and the eroding of the American way of life, how she once was great, and now she's a shambles. And I'll tell you something else. We've also lost the Billy Sundays, the J. Frank Norrises, the Bud Robinsons, the B.R. Lakins, 
the Bob Jones Seniors, the Sam Jones, the Dallas Billingtons, the Mel Sobacas, the R.G. Lees, the J. Vernon McGee's, and the Oliver Greens. They're all gone now. And we see the same thing in Christianity with the men that God used and those men who held the line and taught the truth and handed it down are now all gone. And they're forgotten. Now the absolute goal and purpose to us and for us who have the truth is to reproduce it, to duplicate it in other people's lives. Or it, my friend, in time will become and completely disappear. And that's where it's headed. That's what's wrong with Christianity. Just as the sacrifice of America was lost from World War I, the sacrifice from our boys in, in Europe, in Japan, uh, in the in uh, theater in the, in the Far East, it's all gone now because the old boys who held the line and preached the book are all gone. They have been forgotten and the truths have been forgotten and Christianity today stands as the prophecy in, in, in Proverbs says that we have lost the landmarks and now we are in the fields of the fatherless. Oh, you believe stuff, but you don't know why you believe it. Now that's what God has called each of us to do. And this next section in Proverbs shows us how to keep it going. That's why it's so invaluable. This is what churches are called to do. This is the single fundamental goal of my church, any church. Reproduce ourselves in others. Bring that fruit and make sure that fruit remains. The job of the church is not to build great buildings. I don't know where that came in. I know where it came in because once that generation was gone and we forgot what our goals was, once it ceased to be passed down from person to person to person, then you come up one morning in Christianity and you think the goal is to build big churches. No, the goal is to build strong people. What good is it that you got a $65 million building that'll hold 20,000 people if they don't even know what they believe? Excuse me. If you haven't figured it out yet, today's going to be a rough one. <clears throat> We're so foolish as Christians. But I'm afraid that that biblical system of handing down truth has long been abandoned today. And like almost everything else in Christianity and and the Bible, it's been replaced by a worldly system, a non-biblical process. Oh, still connected around churches, still connected around the Bible. It's just nothing is true anymore. And the Bible has ceased to be a coffee table emblem but not a final absolute authority. You know, <clears throat> there was a time when the word separate simply meant what it says. We as the body of believers, or the body of Christ, at salvation were separated from the world. But it's not true today. Christianity now has become one with the world. It's a fact of history repeating itself. You'd think we'd learn the lessons. 
One of the seven laws in the Bible is the law of repetitiveness of history. If man doesn't learn the mistakes of history, then he continues to make the mistakes in the future. In church history, we see the exact same thing. You'd think we'd learn from it. Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 17, talks about the church of Pergamos. Now, I don't have to go into a lot of detail on this because you've been around here for any length of time. You know that Revelation chapter 2 and 3 breaks the 2,000 years of church history down into seven legitimate periods of church history. They coincide and line up with history exactly. And uh, you know that uh, 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 when you get to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, you're in the church at Pergamos. Now, that is the third church in church history. If you go back in chapter 2, you had Ephesus. That's approximately Acts chapter 20, 60 A.D. up to about 150. And then the second church was Smyrna. That's about 150 up to 325. And then we come to Pergamos, about 325 up to the beginning of the Dark Ages in 500. And we go through several more churches. The name Pergamos means much marriage. And in history, it's a time when the church hit the skids for the first time. It did it twice. The church went into apostasy twice, just like Israel went into captivity twice. And the second time Israel went into captivity, it's going to get, it's going to get shut down by the second coming of Christ. And the second time the church went into captivity, it's going to get shut down by the rapture of the church. But we don't have time to get into all that. We found in Revelation chapter 2 that the first church, Ephesus, Ephesus means fully purposed, was a church that was set up by the apostles and ready to go. But we find in that verse anonymous tone that sets the whole theater for what's about to happen. Because the Bible says that they left their first love. They didn't lose it. They left it. And the first love was their word of God. And right now is when we begin to see the creeping in in Bible Christianity what you see today. We begin to see it fall apart. We begin to see heresy come in. Bad teachings come in. And by the time you get to the Pergamos church period, the church now has fully embraced the world, even though it's still a church. It's brought in worldly concepts. It's brought in everything that the world is. And the church of Jesus Christ has married itself to the world. That's where we're at today. Simply trying to make the things of our flesh, simply trying to make the things of the world be compatible with the things of the Spirit of God. Do you know how absolutely impossible that is? We've now seen the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets in Isaiah 5.20 where Isaiah said that there'll be a day when evil will be called good and good will be called evil. We now see the prophecy of Hosea chapter 4 where he said there's no truth, there's no mercy, and there's coming a time when there'll be no knowledge of God. We're seeing the prophecy of Isaiah in his 59, 14, or 57, 14, where he says and prophesied that there'd be a day when truth would be fallen in the streets. I use this as an illustration because it's a time when Eve Last week was cutting her client's hair. She does hair. And as, as Eve's bubbly little personality is, she engages people in talk, and, and they, they find, she, she, this guy's a Christian, and he goes to a, a large church in, in the Lee Summit, and I wouldn't tell you what it, what it is. It's not, that's not important because it could be any church, and just about is any church today. 
And he was telling her about a new men's ministry in their church. Eve, always looking for an opportunity to better what we do here, was all ears. And she says, well, what new ministry is this? And he said, well, it's called Beer and a Bible. Good recovery, Bob. <laughs> Beer in the Bible. And it, it, it's a thing where now they get a bunch of guys together, men's ministry, go to a bar, all get a beer, study their Bibles. And his reasoning, I understand his reasoning is, well, we go into where the sinners are. I have no problem with going where the sinners are. My problem is you doing what sinners do. Eve... Ask the question. She says, well, let me ask you a question. First she said, what? (laughs) Pretty close, pretty close. Then she says, well, let me ask you a question. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. What do you do with someone who's an alcoholic? And his answer was, oh, that's a very good question. (laughs) Now, I don't know who put the ministry together. It probably comes down the chain of command because stuff like that usually flows downhill. You proved my point. You're smarter about it than the pastor is. You thought it through in what? 30 seconds. He still ain't figured it out. Don't you know that would be problematic? And and where do you draw the line? You know someday in Missouri, not too distant future, they're going to legalize marijuana? And you know where you, once you open the door to your flesh and make it equal with the Bible, do you know where it's going to wind up going? Oh, You don't, Romans says you can't mess with the flesh, you can't play with the flesh, you have to crucify the flesh, and you certainly can never get the flesh and the Spirit of God together. That's where we're at today. I'm not criticizing anybody, I'm just telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. But I got to tell you, that's a good name for this new ministry. I said, very clever, whoever thought of it. Because there was a time less than 100 years ago. Proves my point. There was a time less than 100 years ago when the Bible and beer could not be in the same universe together in a church. But we've forgotten. You know what we forgot? We've forgotten in the 1920s who Billy Sunday was and what he did and why. We've lost it. We're in the fields of the fatherless. We've lost the concept of separation We failed to hand down from generation to generation the absolute truth. Pastors have failed in the eight concepts that they need to be in, and now we produce churches, Christians, who have absolutely no idea what it means to be separate from the world. Somebody today has to hold the line. We've got the ox cart mentality in ministry like back in, in, in Samuel, 2 Samuel, where the ark was supposed to be carried one way, but they decided a new way to minister, so they put it on an ox cart and yeah, it got killed. You don't replace the way God says the ministry has to run. But here's the problem. We don't like evolution. If you go into these churches and you say, how many of you people believe in evolution? Oh, 
know, you'd get a you'd get a whole busload of people. The whole church would be against it. Yeah, right up to when it comes to your Bible. You don't believe in Darwin's evolution, but you believe your Bible keeps evolving through a new translation. You're no better than Darwin was. Now, when you take that position, whether you know you're taking it or not, you'll wind up in trouble. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 says, the salt, we are the salt of the earth. We were to be the preserving agent in this world through the Bible and its principles and our separation to keep the world focused on the Bible. But the Bible says the salt, when the, when the salt loses its savor, because the, lost, the, the, the salt has lost its savor, the church has lost its savior, the word of God. Now, I got to get this, and now we're going to crank it up a little bit. In the Pergamos church period, there was a man. And let me say this. There will always be a man. I don't care how dark it gets. I don't care how bleak it gets. There wasn't a time in the darkest part of the nation of Israel that God didn't have his man. And there's not a time, no matter how bad Christianity is, and it's bad, that God doesn't have his man That's because the job of the church is to keep building them. Now look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. Right in the middle of Pergamos, much marriage. Revelation 2, 13. Right smack dab in the middle of this time. I know thy works and where thy dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name and have not denied my faith even in those days when Antipas... My faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Now, this guy is a hero of mine. He's one of my favorite heroes in the Bible. Now, he will not be most people's hero today. I need to tell you that. But he's my hero. He's not talked about anywhere else in Scripture. He's unknown as to who he is in church history. There's no references to him anywhere. But he's our example of God's man who stood for the truth in a Christianity in Pergamos when it was busily getting married to the world. His name says it all, Anubis, which simply means against everything. Here's a guy that nobody knows, but he represents the millions of unsung heroes down through history that when the big-time boys fell into apostasy, men like him stood against it. He's negative, totally negative toward the marriage of the church to the world. Told you God's people wouldn't like him. He rocks the boat. He flushes phony Christians out like a good bird dog does a covey of quail. Oh, I know who he is now. He's what you and I ought to be. When I grow up, I want to be just like him. My, my favorite criticism about myself I hear all the time is that Bob's negative. Amen. You pray for me that I will get worse. I'll tell you right now, no bones about it. I'm against everything in Christianity that goes against that book. And I'll tell you something else. You can always tell where a real Christian is, where he, with her or she, or with the book and the Word of God, by what they're against. What are you against this morning? Anything? Oh, I know. You're against the people who stand for something. Any church, Bible-believing church, will only be as strong as the stand that it takes against what's wrong. 
I read a book years ago by an old English divine, and he said the job of every Christian, the job of every Christian, no matter what age he lives in, is to find out what the prevailing spirit is in the age by which he lives and then take everything he has and go against that spirit. Incredible. When there's nothing wrong anymore, when there's no sin anymore, when everything is okay, when you're married to the world, then you have nothing to stand for. And when you have nothing to stand for, you will fall for everything. My goal for this church, my goal for you is simple. To provide you with a base of fundamental truth about God in that book and then build you on that truth the rest of your life to reproduce and duplicate yourself with that truth in others. Some will love it and stay. Some will hate it and leave. I've never understood. And there's some things in life that I am confused about. Really. Why God's people would claim to have gotten saved, but then openly hate the things that God saved them for. And get married to the world when the Bible clearly says we're to be married to Christ. They never do anything for God. You know, there's something really wrong with Christianity today. Luke 6, 46, Jesus, he said, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? That was a question. I think he's confused. You know what follows in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 23 through 31? That was just the introduction. It was the process of being a successful Christian. I read a book years ago by Wilbert Pickering. He's long dead now. But he wrote a book called The Identity of the New Testament Church. And this is what has failed the church today. They've lost their identity. And remember now, a successful Christian is one who gets saved and then does what God saved him for in his life. And if you want to be an anapist, here's the greatest section in the Bible that shows you the inner strength of a guy like him. I, I, I love the movie Spartacus. I don't think Spartacus was even a real guy, but Kirk Douglas played the original classic. And you know how the story goes. The Roman Empire is oppressing everybody. Spartacus is a slave, and uh, he leaves a slave revolt, builds a slave army, and he kicks the crap out of the Roman Empire. But at the end of the movie, he gets betrayed, and he gets almost wiped out. His whole army gets destroyed. There's about 300 people left. They got them all surrounded, and finally they capped them, take them alive, and Spartacus is the one taken alive. They want Spartacus. The Roman emperor hates Spartacus. He wants to kill Spartacus. He wants to do do terrible things to his body. He wants to just rip him apart limb from limb. So he goes up there with all these 300 guys or 200, whatever it was, all there, you know, soldiers, everyone, loves Spartacus, and he says, I will let you go. And send you home to your families if you just give me Spartacus. And you know what? Spartacus is alive. He's right there in that crowd. And he obviously thinking, I'm not going to make these people pray. So he stands up and he says, I'm Spartacus. Guy next to him stands up and says, I'm Spartacus. Guy over here says, I'm Spartacus. By the time they were done, all 300 people had stood up and said, I'm Spartacus. You know what has to happen in a church like this? Everybody needs to stand up and say, I'm Anipus. I'm against everything. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. 
Well, let's read Proverbs chapter 11, verses 23 through 31 here. It says, The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. There is that scattereth and yet increaseth, and there is that withholdeth more than is meat, but it tendeth to poverty. The liberal soul shall be made fat, for he that watereth shall be watered unto himself. He that withholdeth corn, the people shall curse him, but the blessing shall be upon the head of him that selleth it. He that diligently seeketh good procureth favor, but he that seeketh mischief, it shall come unto him. Uh, he that trusteth in his riches shall fall, but the righteous shall flourish as a branch. He that troubled his own house shall inherit the wind. Amen. And the fool shall be servant to the wise of heart. Uh, the fruit of the righteous is the tree of life, that he that winneth souls is wise. Behold, the righteous shall be recompensed in the earth, and much more the wicked uh, and the sinner. Now, Father, help us today. Lord, if there's ever a message that any church needs, it's this message. Now, Lord, if it's a message that we need today, it's this message. Because we too, as, as hard as we try and as focused as we try to be, it's so easy in all that we have to put up with all day long that we lose our edge and lose our focus. Let this message pull us back online. Let this message sharpen us up again. And let us never forget the great sacrifices that were made for us to have this book to preach the Bible. And let us commit in our hearts to duplicate ourselves in other people, to keep alive, at least in this church, keep it alive as it goes back down through history up into the future till Jesus comes for us. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I think to me this is one of the greatest places in all the Bible, tucked away in Proverbs chapter 11, that lays out the eight areas of my life uh, that are key uh, to success as a child of God. And you come down through here, there's eight things I want to talk about. I'm not going to get through them today, but we will when we get down through it all. Building people through the process of building yourself first, then reproducing it in others. And that should be the number one goal of this church. That's my number one goal for you, for the church that we have here, to help you do that. That's what God saved us for. Now, verse one, says, verse 23 says, The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. Now, if there's one element that sets God's people apart into two specific categories, it's that single word. And here's the key word we want to talk about this morning. It's the word desire. Desire. If there's any one word that separates God's people out from God's people who have a desire for the things of God and God's people who have no desire for the things of God, it'll be that word desire. And let me be clear. I'm not going to be talking about a convenient Christianity today. That's what everybody wants. That's what everybody has to have. Your desire is to have a, a Christian life that there's no trouble in. Your desire is to have a Christian life where your, your comfort zone never gets bumped around. Your desire is to have a nice life where nothing ever happens bad in your life. And that's what Christianity wants. And that's what preachers want to preach to. You don't need a convenient Christianity. You need a sacrificial Christianity. You need a Christianity in your life that you understand that you are a living sacrifice for the one who became the sacrifice on Calvary's cross for you. That's what you need to get to. When a person desires something, he has a passion for it, a drive that keeps him moving after that desire. Psalm 38, 9 says, Lord, all my desires is before thee. Proverbs 13, 12 says that when desire cometh, that it is a tree of life. Proverbs 13, 19 says when that, when, that when desire is accomplished, that it is sweet to the soul. And Isaiah 26, 8 says that the desire of our soul is to thy name and the remembrance of thee. 
And a great question to ask yourself through this message today as we come through it. What is your desire today? With who and with what? Ask yourself if your Christianity is a convenient Christianity or a sacrificial Christianity. I've had to ask myself all week as I put this together. You only got to do it for the next 20 minutes or so. You see, desire for the things of God is what sets God's people into two very clear categories. The verse says, the desire of the righteous is only good. Not only to obtain good, but to be good and to do good. In building strong Christians, men and women, families, that in these last days can duplicate and reproduce themselves and other Christians, other families, that if you look around in our church and you see Lincoln, Nebraska, and Wichita, and the people that we work with here, that's exactly what we're doing. For a man or a woman to move up the spiritual levels to get to a place of real leadership with others, there has to be a real, uh, to be able to take a real piece of the work. It takes a desire. I can lay out the Bible for you, and I have. I, I can teach you church history and how it relates to you, and I have. I can lay out types, dispensations, character studies. I can teach you how to preach, how to teach, how to minister to others, and I have. But I can never, I cannot, nor never will I be able to teach you how to have a desire for the things of God. That has to come with you. You have to decide at some point in your life when you see and understand and 100% give yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and leave the world behind, leave your friends behind, and sometimes even leave your family behind to make that sacrificial Christianity in your life. You know, desire in our lives is so many things. It will develop itself once you have the desire to be what God wants you to do. Once you have the burning desire that nothing is going to stop you, it'll develop itself into so many aspects uh, that, that uh, it, it goes back to the central theme of your desire. Because desire will be passion. Desire will be motivation. Desire will be steadfastness. Desire will be courage. Desire will be determination. It'll be focus. It'll be commitment. It'll be endurance. It'll be purpose. It'll be the ability to make really hard decisions and choices when an easy way out is just a compromise. Desire is the number one ingredient that I look for in leadership. A desire for God and the things of God, that will be the core value of a leader. It's vital in ministry and doing the work of God. So many of God's people that they get so sidetracked so easily. We see it all the time. It's easy to say, well, they're just lazy. We see somebody over here say, well, it's a lack of commitment. We say, well, it's a lack of discipline. Well, they don't really have a structure in their life. Well, it's a lack of wanting to understand. You can take all those things and you can put them in one word. It's a lack of desire. When you desire the things of God, nobody will stop you. But I've seen them. I've seen some of God's people never finish anything that they start. I've had people come to me and say, oh, I want to be discipled. Oh, disciple me. I never had a fair shot. Please disciple me. And I'll say, I'll disciple you. Three lessons in, they're gone. You've dealt with people, oh, fix my problem. Help me with this. Help me with that. Once they are faced with the real problem and they have to face the real desire, they're gone. They're gone. 
I've had people say, oh, I want to disciple somebody. I want to disciple somebody. So I give them somebody three lessons in. You can't find them when a person hasn't heard from them. Desire. When there's no desire, there's no commitment. There's no passion. And the things of God get easier replaced in our lives. Some of you here today, bless your hearts, and I love you. You'll hear this message. You'll get all fired up. You'll say, I'm going to be that. Boy, that's me. This is my time. I'm going to do it. And you'll go out of here with your rear end on fire. And you'll have a flame out by Wednesday. Because it's a convenient Christianity, not a sacrificial Christianity. A strong Christian, a true leader, will be identified by his or his, his or her desire to be the law that he or she can be for God. Listen, desire will keep you focused on the goals of ministry when chaos descends in the midst of ministry. And brother, it will. There'll be times when it seems like the whole ceiling's falling in when you're trying to do something. But your desire is what will keep you focused. Even in the ministry when you make a mistake. We all make mistakes. It's that desire for the things of God that will keep you from staying down. Keep you from making another mistake. To compound to the last mistake. The desire of the righteous is only good. I'll tell you something else. Desire will separate you from people who have no desire. Amos 3.3, 3, how can two walk together except they be agreed? I can, a convenient Christianity will never be able to abide alongside a sacrificial Christianity. If you don't get anything else I said, take that home with you. A person with a convenient Christianity will never get along with you who has a sacrificial Christianity. The desire to do good will cause you some issues with people, God's people in your life. The verse says, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. You will have other Christians in your life who don't care about the things of God, don't have a sacrificial Christianity. They have a convenient Christianity. And you know what? They expect you to be just like them. That's our expectation. And when you won't or you don't, you'll see how fast your relationship disintegrates. You're either going to fulfill the expectation that God has for you or you're going to fulfill the expectation that other people have for you. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. Desire is the number one character quality that sets a real Christian apart from the phony ones. It will separate you from your friends and it will sometimes separate you from your family. There's some great lessons on dealing with family issues in the Bible and the ministry when you want to serve God with a desire and other family members don't. Jesus experienced the same thing. He had some of his own brothers and sisters who would not believe that he was the son of God. He told you in Matthew chapter 10 that your desire to follow him was going to put an enmity between your family. Father against son, daughter against mother. And people look at that and they say, why does that have to be? Why is it that way? Let me explain it to you. 
Here's the problem fundamentally. You may be of the same blood, but you're not of the same spirit. And you can't get a convenient Christianity alongside a sacrificial Christianity if you stay all up all night and try to do it. It just can't be done. Somebody says, blood's thicker than water. That's the old phrase we've all heard all our life. And it's true that the world just changed it around. Because in the Bible, blood is the blood of Christ. Water is your physical birth. And taking a stand for the things of God should be always override the things of your family when they're not of the same spirit. But that comes because of your desire and their lack of desire. Listen, when a Christian refuses to do right, whether it's friend or family, and you desire God and the things of God, you make them look bad. I've had people who left this church with left some family members in our church. And they didn't like this, they didn't like me, they didn't like that, they didn't like that. And, 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 and the greatest deterrent to their argument is part of their family still stayed in the church and still growing, still moving, they're still ministering, and they're not. You know, that's, that's like a big hairball in their throat. You ever have a hairball in your throat? If you got a cat or a dog, try it this afternoon. Just mix it up. It, it, it sticks. You can't get it up. You can't get it out. It just chokes you. And when you have a desire to serve God and somebody else doesn't, it just sticks in their throat. They're going to have a problem with you. They just can't understand why you can continue to grow and minister and work people and be so happy in a church that they couldn't be happy and successful in. The answer is simple. Desire. Desire. Had a young man here, oh, six or seven months ago. He's here this morning, and I won't embarrass him in any way, shape, or form, but he called me on the phone, came talk to me one time. His family wanted him to do something. That was st- it wasn't a sin sin, but it was outside what the Bible taught in another church. And he, he was struggled because it was something that went against every value system that, that we taught here, and he knew what the Bible said. He knew. It wasn't a question of what I know is right or wrong. It was a question, what do I do? Should I do it? Should I do And I just played it cool and backed off because I like to see when you're in those scenarios how you do it. And he took the right choice. He made the right decision. But it caused a ruffle of flurries in his family. But you know what? I've always loved that young man, and I've always thought he was a great character, but his stock went up about 20 points because all by himself, he decided he was going to do what the Bible said over what religion wanted him to do. You know why? Because he had a desire, a desire, a desire. We hate your Bible. We hate your church. We hate your pastor but we're like you. So let's bond together. Try it sometime. Had a lady one time, loved our church, loved coming, had a husband. He was a nice guy. I liked him. And I think he liked me, but he sure hated my messages, my preaching. And he would refuse to come to church. And he wanted her to go to another church. And she, uh, she said, I'm, 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 I'm not, uh, she said, I'm not, and they fought about it for a long time. Finally, she said, look, here's the deal. 
I'll leave that church. I'll go wherever you want to go, but you got to do one thing. Saliva coming out of his mouth. What's that? Tell me one thing that Bob preaches that is wrong. He thought, he says, well, that's the problem. Nothing he preaches is wrong. I just don't like it. There you are. There you are. I got him a website where he wanted to sign up to be with the Taliban. I think he's over in the Middle East someplace right now. Hey, whenever, you're, whenever in life you as a Christian will go or do for God, it will always come back and depend on one senior issue, your desire to do good. For a man like Antipas to be against everything in time, in his time of Christianity one of the most terrible times in all of church history, but exactly like today. The church throwing out its first love and then marrying itself to the world. Beer and a Bible. Yet he's a role model for all of us of what it takes to be God's man today. He makes me look like a liberal. The great unknown unsung heroes of his day doing what he knew the Bible said in the face of a Christianity that had lost its way completely. He never gave up. He didn't quit. He never complained. He certainly never lost his focus. And he certainly was not a coward. He never put his tail between his legs and compromised. He just stayed with it because his Christianity was sacrificial, not convenient. He had a desire to do good, and his prayer, obviously, was, Lord, all my desire is before thee. And I could give you a list today, down through the history of the first, second century. Dante, Novatius, Manet, Peter Waldo, all were men of his character. That when things even got worse, they had a desire, and stayed with the book. I guarantee you he, he, lost some, he lost his friends, probably lost his family. And his stand, ultimately, he paid the ultimate price, and it cost him his life. But verse 13 says, Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Now, here's the thing I want you to see. Slain among you. God's people killed him. And in his day, God's people killed him physically. Today, they'll just assassinate your character spiritually. But it's the same crowd. My, my, what a verse. He didn't, as a Christian, just play church, pretend he was okay, make Christianity work around his lifestyle, marry his Christianity to the world. He stayed separate from the world. And in verse 13, he took the fight right to where Satan dwelleth. In the church... In his Christianity, and verse 13 of chapter 2 says where Satan's, Satan's seat was. He took it right, he took the fight right to him. He wasn't somebody that stood over here and said, oh, I don't, you know, this person has a problem in our church, but let's go to lunch together. Let's just bond. Oh, you don't like our Bible. You don't like my preacher. You don't like this. But let's just all go kumbaya together. That's not him. That's you. That's you. When it was wrong, it was wrong. And when it was against the word of God, it was against the word of God. 
His Christianity wasn't a convenience like most of God's people's are. It was sacrificial. And a sacrifice means you have to lose some things. But God's people aren't willing to lose them today. He took the fight right where Satan dwells. I guarantee you, you open up your mouth and you put the word of God to those people, it'll be your last lunch. But you're gutless. He paid the ultimate price. The desirous heart took him all the way home. Oh, oh, desire, desire, the desire that we have to do what God wants, it'll take you everywhere. It'll do everything. It'll separate you from everybody. And if you're anything today, if you're ever going to be anything, if you're ever going to do anything, if you're ever going to duplicate yourself and, and put yourself into people, it's going to take the desire That one word should stir the heart of every red-blooded child of God to take his stand. It ought to be the battle cry of every blood-washed child of God, male or female, to say in these last days, you know what? I'm Antipas! I'm Antipas! I'm Antipas! Because we as God's child, we're in one camp or the other. You either have a Christianity that's convenient for you, or you'll have a sacrificial Christianity Well, you make whatever sacrifice you have to make to get the job done. When God calls you to duplicate and replicate yourself in people, that's what you do. But you have to be something first. You have to have something first. You have to have something that will carry you through that you're going to hand down to them. It's desire. It's desire. Your desire to do good. Well, that was verse one. Next week, we'll move into the rest of them and come down through them. But you can see, this is the message in the day we live of what we need. Please don't forget this throughout the week. Uh, take time to sign up this morning back there. Remember, we need hot dogs and buns and we need Easter eggs and candy, all that stuff. Uh, and help us with that all this week. 